One of the most interesting sights in the land of Israel by far is the Sea of Galilee. As I've mentioned in the past, it's really not a sea at all. It's actually a freshwater lake, but it is called the Sea of Galilee because Jewish people used to refer to any contained body of water as yam in Hebrew or sea. Even a little puddle of water, a bird bath, was called yam or sea. That's how this freshwater lake got its name as the Sea of Galilee. It is approximately 12 miles long from north to south and seven and a half miles wide from east to west. And it sits at about 685 feet below sea level. The land on the west side of the lake rises considerably with numerous hills and mountains that form upper and lower Galilee. And the land on the east side also rises considerably considerably to form what is known as the Golan Heights. So that means that the Sea of Galilee is down in a bowl, as it were, at 650 feet below sea level. Over 650 feet, actually closer to 685. That is very significant to keep in mind when you read in the Gospels about storms on the Sea of Galilee. Because the land to the west has mountains bisected by a series of small east-west valleys, whenever there is wind in the area, it funnels down these valleys and it rockets toward the Sea of Galilee. Now remember, the elevation of the land to the west averages about 2,000 feet above sea level, and the Sea of Galilee is 685 feet below sea level. Therefore, the strong winds that come off the Mediterranean funnel toward the Sea of Galilee and can pound the surface of the water. These winds often seem to come out of nowhere, and when they hit, they can create massive storm conditions on the lake. It's, it's really just like a brawling storm out in the ocean. We see an example of one of those in the text to which we come this morning. It's in Mark chapter 6, so please turn with me in your Bible to the second gospel account, the gospel of Mark, the sixth chapter. And as we continue our working our way through Mark's gospel, we come this morning to verses 45 through 52. So please follow along as I read these verses for us. <clears throat> Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. 
Trying to describe the ministry of Jesus is like a child trying to describe the complexities of nuclear fission. What I mean is, there was so much to the ministry of Jesus that it is impossible to fully grasp all that he did in that brief three-plus-year period that he ministered. No wonder the Apostle John said that the world could not contain the books if everything were recorded. Our Lord's days were full of people pulling on Him to heal their loved ones and crowds gathering around Him to hear what He would say next or to see what He would do next. And even when He wasn't in the public eye, many things were going on in His interaction with His disciples behind the scene as we see in this text before us. This was not a public miracle of Jesus. In other words, it wasn't like the previous miracle that we saw last week where Jesus fed maybe as many as 25,000 people. No, this was only a miracle seen by the disciples. So not a public miracle, but certainly it was a significant one. It is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John, three of the four Gospels, which shows us the emphasis that the Spirit of God wants us to place on this event. Now, we don't know if Jesus specifically caused this storm to arise to carry out his purposes, or if he simply used the occasion to carry out his purposes. You see, there were many times in his ministry when Jesus used the normal circumstances and events of life to display his power and carry out his purposes. For example, when he turned the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana, his very first miracle. There is no evidence that he caused the host to run out of wine before the party was over. That's just what happened. And Jesus used that occasion to display his power and carry out his purposes. But there were other times when Jesus purposely caused things or set things up or orchestrated things so he could display his power and carry out his purposes. For instance, John 11 tells us that when he heard that Lazarus was sick, very sick, he purposely delayed to give him time to die. Jesus didn't cause him to get sick and die, but he did specifically set up a scenario to display his power and carry out his purposes. So all that to say, we don't know about this occasion for sure. Did Jesus cause this storm to arise to display his power and carry out his purposes? Or did he simply use the occasion, the natural storm that came about? And really, there's a sense in which it doesn't matter which was the case. And there's a sense in which the two can't be divided up anyway. The line between what the Lord causes and what he allows is a lot finer than we sometimes think. But that's another topic. What is important to draw from this story is not whether Jesus merely responded to the storm or whether he caused the storm, but rather what he did about the storm. That is what the Holy Spirit of God wants us to see in Mark's record of this remarkable event. Now this story like the one we considered last week, the feeding of the 5,000. This is one of the most well-known stories in all the life and ministry of Jesus. 
My guess is that virtually every person here in this room is familiar with this story. Whether you're a Christian or not, you probably have heard this story. So therefore, my challenge to you, my encourage to you, my encouragement to you is to not allow your familiarity to rob you of the amazing nature of what happened on this night. Notice how Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes it. Verse 45. He says, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, or some translations invited strongly or urged his disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. That last phrase, of course, is a reference to the multitude that was just fed. 15, 20, maybe 25,000 people. Jesus fed. He told his disciples, get into a boat. You go on. I'll send the crowds home. I'll disperse the crowds. I'll join you later. Jesus urged them to do this. Now, when we read this verse, once again, we are confronted by a question that we cannot completely answer. Why did Jesus have his disciples to get into this boat and go to the other side of the lake? Why? There could be a number of correct answers to that question. Maybe Jesus knew that it was time for him and for them to get a break from the multitudes. There were times when he intentionally pulled away from the multitudes and even pulled his disciples away from the multitudes to rest and recharge and to to gather strength. In fact, back in verse 30 or verse 31, Jesus said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So on that occasion, just before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus was trying to get away, and it didn't happen. So now maybe he decides it's time. We need to back off. We need to get away. That's one possible explanation for why he commanded them to get into this boat and go to the other side. Here's another possibility. Maybe it was because Jesus wanted to separate from his disciples so he could have some time alone in prayer. That's what he ends up doing, this text tells us. He goes off to pray. Or maybe, maybe he was setting up his disciples for the storm, knowing it was coming, so he could strengthen their faith. Or maybe it was all of the above. The text doesn't tell us exactly why Jesus did this, but it does tell us what Jesus did and what resulted from his actions. Now, we can make educated guesses about some of the reasons by looking at other passages that tell us why Jesus did what he did, but, beloved, we need to be careful about assuming we know with certainty when the text doesn't tell us. I'm sure I don't have to inform you that the ways of the Lord are not simplistic, And there are many times in life when we don't understand what he is doing or why he is doing what he is doing or why he is not doing what we think he ought to be doing. The disciples were given these instructions by Jesus without any explanation. You get into a boat, you go to the other side. Verse 46 tells us, And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. A little statement tucked in here by Mark with profound significance. Jesus departed off to one of the mountains in Galilee there to pray. 
Have you ever thought, of much, thought much about the prayer life of Jesus? You see, because our view of him as God, which of course he was God in human flesh, but because that's the grid through which we so often see him, we really don't think that much about his prayer life. Why does God doesn't need to pray? But Jesus was a man. He lived as a man. He functioned as a man. What did he pray about in his life? Did he get verbal answers from the Father? Or was it like what it is like for us when we pray? Were the heavens silent when he prayed? And why did he go off to pray on this occasion? Was he praying for his disciples, knowing what was coming? Was he praying for the multitudes who had just been fed, praying that they would see the significance of that miracle, that he is the bread of life, he is the source of satisfaction? Was he praying for direction from the Father concerning what he should do next? After all, he makes it clear in John's gospel, he did exactly what the Father wanted him to do always and only what the Father wanted him to do always. So was he asking for direction? It's a mysterious subject to contemplate. The the implication of the gospel records is that the prayer life of Jesus was much like ours in the sense that when he prayed, he didn't get immediate verbal responses from the Father. The heavens were silent, except on the rare occasions recorded when the Father spoke from heaven. But the normal experience seems to have been similar to ours in that Jesus prayed to the Father and had to accept by faith that the Father had heard him and would respond to his prayers. I don't know about you, but that encourages me to think about that. It's so easy to get discouraged in our praying to the Father, but the example of Jesus encourages us. He pulled away to be alone in prayer. Verse 47 tells us, Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. The middle of the sea, because they were basically not going south to north or north to south, but east and west across the sea. So the middle of the sea would be about four miles out, since the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles, just shy of eight miles wide, depending on where you're at when you take the measurement. So they're, they're several miles out, three to four miles out, so it didn't matter which way they decided to go because they had a long way to shore in all directions. And the next verse also says that the wind was contrary to them. Verse 48 says, Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. So the wind, the first phrase in this verse tells us about the wind. They were straining because the wind was against them. In other words, when they decided to go east, the wind would blow them west. When they decided to go west, the wind would blow them east. It just kept switching directions on them. The, the wind was contrary, so it was always against them. They couldn't make headway. By the way, that was exactly the circumstance that Jesus wanted them to be in on this occasion. Exactly. As I've often said in the past, Jesus was a very unusual teacher. I don't know of many of our college students who would ever want to take a class from Jesus because he gave the test first, then the lesson. That's what he's doing here. He's giving the test right now, and then after the test, he'll give the lesson. The end of this verse says that 
Jesus came to his disciples at about the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night would be sometime after 3 a.m. So it is pitch black, dark, wind raging, waves beating the boat. Isn't this just how the Lord works? Surely you've seen this in your life. He comes to us in our darkest hours when everything seems hopeless. That's what he did on this occasion. The sea is raging. The wind is contrary. The disciples are smack dab in the middle of the lake. It was then that Jesus came. How did he get there? According to verse 47, he was alone on the land. How did he get there? It's possible that Jesus supernaturally came to the disciples. In other words, he was sort of just transported from off the mountain right there onto the lake. Possible. But since he functioned as a man, lived as a man, probably not likely. So it's possible that he simply walked down the mountain to the lake, which is why he didn't get there until after 3 a.m. He's quite a ways away. But either way, however he got there, when he came walking on the water, the disciples were terrified. Verse 49 says, And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. So did the disciples believe in ghosts? Maybe they did. But even if they didn't, when you are gripped by intense fear, you don't think logically. You don't think clearly. I mean, what else could they conclude? It's the middle of the night. A storm is raging, and all of a sudden you see something moving along the surface of the water. Someone moving along the surface of the water. Your initial response isn't going to be, oh, there comes someone walking on the water. Who's that? No one's going to think that. How many times have you seen someone walking on the water? My guess is not very many. So it's understandable that the disciples would think that this is some kind of ghost. This is some kind of spirit. What is this? And they were so afraid that they didn't only seize up with fear, they cried out from fear, the text tells us. That is really being afraid. I have had nightmares that scared me so badly that I trembled in my sleep. But the worst ones are the rare ones that cause me to actually cry out in my sleep. That is really being afraid. And that's what the disciples were like when this happened. They cried out in fear. But Jesus is about to calm their fears. Verse 50, For they all saw him and were troubled, but immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. The translation I am using is a little bit weak at this point because it, it could sound sort of corny, be of good cheer. I mean, that sounds somewhat trivial when you're in the middle of a storm. It's pitch black, wind is boisterous, and it almost sounds as if Jesus were saying, hey, don't worry, be happy, be a good cheer, mate. You know, it is all, that's not the idea at all. As the other versions rendered, he was saying, take courage. Their courage was gone. It had evaporated. And remember, these were experienced boatsmen. They'd been out on this lake many times. This was some storm. Their courage was gone, so he exhorts them to take courage. And then he adds the most important statement of all. 
which none of the translations really bring out, unfortunately. He didn't say literally, it is I. He said, I am. Take courage, I am. What did he mean by that? Did he mean, be of good cheer because I am of good cheer? Not at all. Jesus used this statement because he was linking himself with Exodus 3.14 where God revealed himself to Moses as I am. I am who I am. That is the personal name of God in Hebrew, Yahweh. Jesus was affirming his deity when he said this. He was affirming that he is the great I am. And on that basis, he could exhort them to take courage and not be afraid. It is at this point in the story, and you are familiar with it, so I will mention it. It is at this point in the story when Peter, from the boat, said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Mark doesn't tell us about that part of the story. And remember, Mark's source for his gospel is Peter. And Peter evidently didn't encourage Mark to include that in here because it's quite an amazing thing that Peter did to walk on the water. So maybe this just is a reflection of Peter's humility that that part of the story is left out. But Matthew tells us about it. Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. What was Peter thinking? Now, I'm not criticizing when I ask that question. I'm just wondering what was going through his mind. Why would he say, command me to come to you on the water? If they're all frightened out of their minds, why not say, come to the boat and save us from this storm? I don't know what Peter was thinking, but Jesus went with Peter's request. Jesus invited Peter to walk on the water, and Peter did. Again, I say, don't let your familiarity with this story rob you of the astounding nature of what happened on that night. As far as I know, there, are only, there have only been two people in the history of mankind who have ever walked on water, Jesus and Peter. That's it. And it doesn't shock us that Jesus walked on water because of his divine power, yet even Peter was enabled to walk on water. And you know what happened. Peter walked on the water as long as he had no doubts about walking on the water. It's when he began to have doubts that he began to sink. I can't imagine not having any doubts from the get-go. We sometimes criticize Peter for allowing doubts to creep into his mind when he thought about the boisterous wind, but I think it's commendable that he didn't, he didn't have doubts even when he was still in the boat. I think it's amazing he made the request It seems to me it took quite a bit of faith to step out of that boat in the first place. I must confess I don't think I could have done it. But once Peter did it and began walking on the water, he had no reason to doubt. You see, if Peter were going to doubt, it would make more sense that he would have doubted while he was in the boat. But once he stepped out and saw the marvelous power of Jesus to enable him to walk on the water... There was no reason to doubt in the middle of the miracle. His faith began large, but it shrank down to be little. By the way, how did Peter get back to the boat? Either Jesus carried him back to the boat, or he walked back to the boat on the water, 
after Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him out of the water. I would say that neither is a bad option. I emphasize this because so many people fail to appreciate what the Lord did for Peter in this miracle. When something is said about Peter walking on the water, people often respond with the words, yeah, but he sank. Yes, he did, but he walked a lot farther on water than you've ever walked on water. And you don't read anything about the disciples having a funeral for Peter when they got back to the shore. Again, I say either Jesus carried him back to the boat or he walked back to the boat, and I don't think either one is a bad option. But the focus of this miracle in Mark's account is not Peter, it's Jesus. And so Mark tells us in verse 51, Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves. Now notice Mark's description here. This is such a powerful description. They were greatly amazed. He could have stopped there. They were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Jesus actually performed three different miracles for the sake of his disciples on this occasion. One, he walked on water. Two, he had Peter walk on water. And three, he calmed the storm. Jesus did this to strengthen the faith of his men, as this verse indicates. And Jesus knew that the faith of his men needed to be strengthened, as Mark tells us in the next verse. He says in verse 52, For for they had not understood about the loaves. That's referring to the previous miracle that we saw last week, the feeding of the 5,000 or the 25,000. For they, they had not understood about the loaves. They didn't really get it. Because their heart was hardened. The implication of this statement by Mark is that if the disciples had really grasped the amazing nature of the previous miracle when Jesus fed the thousands, then they wouldn't have been so shocked by this miracle. Verse 51 tells us they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. They were utterly astonished by this miracle, which wasn't a bad response, obviously. But they wouldn't have been so astounded and amazed if they had fully comprehended the previous miracle. If they had processed the implication of the previous miracle, recognizing that Jesus was God in human flesh, then they wouldn't have been so amazed that he could walk on water. I mean, think about it. It's really no big deal for God to walk on water. No big deal at all. But they, they still weren't processing and comprehending the fact that Jesus was God in human flesh. Well, maybe there were times when that, that reality would hit them, but they, they, it was just so elusive, they didn't hold on to it. Thus, they were completely shocked that he could walk on water. And they were completely shocked that he could calm the storm the way he did on this occasion. However, we do know, we do know that this miracle moved them along in their progress. This miracle pushed them because Matthew tells us that when Jesus got into the boat, this is omitted by Mark, Matthew tells us when Jesus got into the boat, the disciples came and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. That is a momentous assertion. You are the Son of God. For a Jewish 
man or for Jewish men to make that statement? It's unthinkable. It's one thing to say Jesus is the Messiah. It's even more of an assertion to say that He is the Son of God. That is a title of deity. So it appears that this miracle further convinced the disciples to come to that conclusion. This miracle pushed them over the top or pushed them over the edge in a good sense in their understanding that Jesus was no mere man. He was human, but He wasn't only human. He was also divine. But they knew He was also a distinct person from the Father, and that's why they used the phrase, truly you are the Son of God. Even though they couldn't completely and fully understand it or grasp it, they could state, you are the Son of God. There's something else that is very interesting to me about this statement by Mark. And I want you to track with me on this. It's very, it's very fascinating to me. Mark says of the disciples that their heart, because their heart was hardened. See that? The reason why that phrase caught my attention when I was studying this passage is because it's a passive verb. In the Greek, it's a passive participle. Therefore, it might be easy to assume that this was something done to them. That's what the passive usually indicates. So that begs the question, screams the question, if this was something done to them, who did it? Did God harden their hearts? Did Jesus harden their hearts? Obviously not. Jesus wanted them to understand. He wanted them to get it. He wanted them to grasp who he was. In fact, there were times when he rebuked them. Oh, you of little faith, why don't you get it by now? He was trying to get them to see it. So even though this is stated in the the passive, this wasn't something done to them. This was their own doing. This was something for which they were responsible. The reason why this is so significant to me is because it is a reminder to me not to wrongly assume That God is the one responsible for people's hard hearts, even if their hardness of heart is described in the passive voice. Let me say, let me elaborate further. You see, some Christians are so much into the sovereignty of God, which is a good thing to be into, by the way, but they're so much into it that they wrongly assume that people don't have genuine volition and genuine responsibility. They almost view people as robots or machines that are simply manipulated by God. Therefore, their view is that if someone doesn't believe or if someone has a hard heart, then it's all because of what God has done or hasn't done in the person's life. They take the statement in Romans 9 where God says, He has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. And they push that to a point where it is unbiblical. They nullify human choice and human responsibility. But this verse shows us that even when hardness of heart is described in the passive voice, it doesn't mean that God did it, or Jesus did it, or the Holy Spirit did it. It would be grossly wrong to suggest 
in this situation that the Lord hardened the hearts of his disciples. You would have to say this. You would have to say that Jesus was trying desperately to get them to see and understand who he was. He wanted them to see and understand who he was. He was trying to get them to see that, and at the same time, he was hardening their hearts so they wouldn't see and understand. That's a blasphemous accusation to make against the Lord. The disciples were the ones responsible for their hardness of heart, even though it's described in the passive voice. But as I said a moment ago, this miracle did move them along in their progress. It did shove them the right direction. This miracle seemed to have pushed them over the edge, in a good sense of that expression, in in, in their understanding that Jesus was no mere man. According to Matthew's account, when Jesus got into the boat, the disciples came and worshipped him and said, truly you are the Son of God. And you know what else is interesting? Jesus, catch this, Jesus accepted their worship. That's very significant. That is quite a contrast to the response of angels when someone tried to worship them. There are a couple times, for example, in the book of Revelation, when John, was, who received the book of Revelation, John was so overwhelmed by what an angel was showing him and revealing to him that he bowed down to worship. And both times, both times the angel rebuked John and strictly charged him not to do that. When John bowed down, the angel said, get up! What are you doing? You don't worship me. Because we don't worship angels. We worship God alone. We worship Christ alone. And that's the point. The very fact that we are to worship Christ is proof of his deity because the Bible is clear that we are only to worship God When the disciples fell at the feet of Jesus to worship him, he accepted their worship. He didn't say, what are you guys doing? Get up! Don't worship me. Worship God. That wasn't his response. He didn't refuse their worship because he didn't need to refuse their worship as if it were somehow inappropriate for him to accept it. He is completely worthy and deserving of worship because he is God the Son. He is not an angel. He is God in human flesh. That's what the disciples affirmed in Matthew 14. Because Jesus is the Son of God, He is worthy of our worship and He is worthy of our lives. So I ask you this morning, have you fallen at His feet in surrender of your life to Him? That is the only proper response. That's the only proper response. And if you have, I ask you this. Do you trust him in the storms of life? He is worthy of our trust, and he is worthy of our worship. I hope that's a reality in your life. Would you please bow your head with me as we close this morning? And as we close our time together this morning, I want you to Ask yourself those two questions once again. Just between you and the Lord, honestly. First of all, have you fallen 
at Christ's feet in surrender of your life to Him. I'm not asking if at some point you said a prayer that has had no impact on your life or you signed a decision card. I'm asking you, have you truly fallen at His feet in surrender of your life to Him? Have you surrendered to Him, acknowledging that He is God, He is Lord, not just Lord in general, but Lord of your life? Have you done that? If you haven't, you need to do that. You need to understand that apart from acknowledging Christ as Lord of your life, apart from surrendering to Him, you are in rebellion against Him, and you face His judgment. So if you are here this morning without Christ, what you need to do is right this moment, right where you are seated in the quietness of your heart, ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Tell Him that you acknowledge that He is God in human flesh. He is the King of the universe. And His rightful place is to be King of your life. Surrender your life to Christ. And if you have and you are a child of God, I ask you this question. Do you trust Him in the storms of life? Really, think about it. Maybe it was just this last week or last month or last year But do you really trust Him in the storms of life? Do you believe He's in control? He is the great I Am. He's he's never out of control. Our circumstances are never out of control. Do you really believe that? And does it show when you walk through the storms of life that He is your firm foundation? Father, as we close our service this morning and our time together, this is a a familiar story to most of us, maybe all of us here in this room, and yet one that is so, so meaningful, so profound. When we stop to think about it and really think about the fact of a man walking on top of the water, the Lord Jesus, and then granting that to Peter, and then calming the raging storm, the wind ceasing, What a majestic picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's obvious that your spirit, as he guided Mark to write this, wants us to see that he is worthy, that the Lord Jesus is worthy of our worship, worthy of our lives, and that we can trust him in the storms of life. Take these truths, we pray, these applications and others, maybe that you have spoken to our hearts about as we've worked our way through this passage. Take these truths precious truths and plant them deep in our hearts and souls and lives so that they become such a sure foundation for us that we're not that we're not tossed to and fro by the storms of life that we're solid that we're firm not in and of ourselves not because of ourselves but because of the Lord Jesus and so in closing, we pray especially for anyone here in, in this room, and surely in a crowd this size, there are some who have never really surrendered to Christ, who've never really embraced Him as Lord and Savior, have never experienced His forgiveness and His salvation. We pray Your Holy Spirit would draw them to the feet of the Lord Jesus, that they would fall and surrender to Him as we pray in His majestic name. Amen.